Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Grow Your Path to Wellness. If this is your first time listening, um, my colleague Amanda and I, we host a new wellness guest every week, and we release our new episodes every Sunday. Per usual, she is continuing to, Amanda is taking time away for her maternity leave to care for her new little one. So it is myself hosting our guests for now. She'll be back soon, but like I always say, we aren't rushing her. She's taking her time adjusting to motherhood. So be sure to like, subscribe, follow, so that way you aren't missing out on our latest episodes. Last week, y'all got to see Amanda. She popped back in temporarily. Uh, as I was out on a much needed vacation. So Amanda hosted a fellow colleague of her own, Jenna Savago. They discussed all about how we can be, we can all be more gender affirming in our everyday life. So if you missed that, make sure you go back and tune in. This week we have a little bit of a schedule change, but we, we all were making it work. So we are kind of airing this week's episode a little bit later, but I am so excited and I, I always say I can't speak for Amanda, but we're both very excited uh, to be hosting Dr. Kristen Casey, a fellow TikTok creator and mental health provider doing all the things. So today I am I'm hosting her and we're going to be talking all about anxiety and insomnia and some common questions she gets on the topic and just she's going to be sharing some expertise on this topic that we haven't covered yet. So. Without further ado, welcome, Dr. Kristen Casey. Thank you so much. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. I'm so happy to finally meet you. Wish, wish Amanda was here too, but we won't hold it against her. Um, so. Okay, at the end, of, well, I'll probably say it at the end of this. We always say, "Hey, you're always welcome to come back if there's a topic." I would love that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Dr. Kristen Casey. Um, like Kelsey mentioned, I'm a TikTok creator. I'm also a clinical health psychologist. I specialize in insomnia, anxiety, depression, relationship concerns, and um, LGBTQIA issues, um, gender and sexuality concerns. Um, so I do therapy and provide psychodiagnostic assessments in a private practice setting, which I love. Um, <clears throat> one thing that I do a lot of is treatment for anxiety and insomnia, and a lot of times I do it together. So really excited to talk on this topic today. Yeah, so this might be an overlapping question, but just in general, what got you interested in the topic, primarily of sleep, but? Yeah, so it's so interesting because I was never really interested in it until um, my clinical internship. Um, I had insomnia, really, I had really bad insomnia growing up, really bad insomnia when I was an EMT on an ambulance because um, we would do night shift and we would get calls in the middle of the night. Um, so I was frequently waking up to attend to these calls and it was it was really tough for me to fall back to sleep and I was thinking well other than dealing with like vicarious trauma and like doing my job in the middle of the night what else is inhibiting me from getting good sleep and a lot of times it was the behavioral things that I was doing like actually bad sleep habits that I thought were good but they were actually counterintuitive so um, I took a little bit of stock in thinking about sleep in a different way when I was a EMT but it never really fully hit until I had to do um, a cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia course um, for my uh, training, my clinical internship. And I remember my supervisor telling me, hey, you know, Dr. Casey, Kristen, um, you know, you have to do this one rotation. And I was, Kelsey, I was dreading it. I was like, I don't want to do the sleep course or the sleep class. Like, this is going to be boring. Like, I don't want to do this. Um, it, it, it sounded awful. And if Dr. Gross, if you're hearing this, like, it's not personal. But I just was, like, not excited about it. Anyway, um, 
when I started to do the class, I actually fell in love. I fell in love with sleep, talking about sleep, researching sleep, everything about sleep and insomnia. Um, and I noticed that a lot of times when people would come to insomnia treatment, they also had a ton of anxiety, which mm-hmm. I loved working on anxiety. So it was like my two loves technically coming together. Um, so from there, um, I really just continued with it. And not many people like to talk about sleep. I'm really passionate about it. Um, but nobody really likes to talk about it. So I'm like, let's talk more about it and like get more information out there because there's a lot of myths. So that's kind of how I got started with it. And I don't, I've never, you're, I mean, of course you're correct. You're like, but uh, like sleep is huge and we spend so much of our life sleeping and the things that it does for our brain. Like we know that like clinically, but it's, it's always been kind of like frustrating to me that it's not something that is talked about more, but it's also, I feel like minimized because of the society that we live in. It's just like, go, go, go. I have to produce. What's the next thing I have to do? Like, I only need four hours of sleep. Like it, I'm, it's fine. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so tough, right? Because like you mentioned, even in like, it's everywhere and yet we're not paying that much attention to it. And I think nowadays people are paying more attention to it, which is making me so excited that people are actually, you know, thinking about their sleep, having a different relationship with their sleep, being curious about their sleep routine, because I think sleep is part of our life pie. When our sleep is off, it's likely something else is off, which, kind of, as you know, alludes to like some, you know, diagnostic criterion and other um, mental disorders, right, of like sleep disturbance. So, you know, if you're just, say, sleeping too much or sleeping too little, maybe you're stressed, maybe you're anxious, maybe something else is going on. Um, but a lot of times we don't really know what to do about it. We're just like, let me just catch up on sleep the next day, which when I hear that, I cringe. Um, or let me take melatonin or let me take over the counter meds, which makes sense for acute insomnia, meaning short term insomnia. But if we have really long term issues with insomnia, we want to make behavioral changes that are more long lasting. So, yeah, I'm, I'm the same boat. I, I'm happy that people are thinking more about it. Yeah. Thinking more of the end because <laughs> It's one of those things like when I feel like the topic of self-care, it's one of those things that I feel like people when they it's like a buzzword or they hear it or something. And then it's like, I know what you're going to tell me. I know (laughs) I need this. I know I shouldn't be on my phone. I know I should. But it's like we talk about those things so much because they are they are so they're so huge and they have such a big impact. So like what making changes, like you said, that are actually realistic is sustainable. I don't feel like people have access to that part of the information. You're 100% right. I mean, there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot of buzzwords out there. There's a lot of um, topics out there or even blogs, which I think it's great that people are putting out information, but I think it's always helpful to figure out how it applies to you. And of course, talk with your provider and your mental health and your um, uh, mental health professional about this as well. But sleep treatment looks so different for everybody. Every single person will have like a different course of insomnia treatment, like we use, I use the traditional protocol, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, but we do make tra- uh, changes for people um, in terms of like accessibility, if they have another diagnosis, if, you know, they have seizures or they have another medical concern, like we always um, formulate it to be unique to the client, just like you and I do when we see uh, therapy patients, right? We want it to be a very unique course of treatment. Um, so for some person, for some people, eight hours or seven hours of sleep might be really beneficial for someone else that actually might be not as helpful because they might wake up feeling incredibly exhausted if they get too much sleep. So for them, seven hours might be too much. So we really like to take a lot of data before we ever kind of like just throw out, like you said, like, oh, don't be on your phone or stuff like that, because sometimes that could even cause more anxiety when people don't have access to their um, to their phone. So for sure. Yeah, very, 
very client centered and it's not just like if you if you feel like you need help with sleep there's so many areas that are centered you know around you and your needs and your lifestyle it's not you're not hopefully ideally you're not just getting handed a a yeah (laughs) exactly yeah okay oh wow so and I'm one of those people like I know about myself that if I don't get a minimum of eight hours of sleep I almost am like I'm just like I feel like I need to just start over can I just go back (laughs) before I do anything yeah say that it's like more people are more sensitive or just different needs when it comes to amount of sleep totally totally and I mean there's so many myths out there right like you absolutely need eight hours like you said for you eight hours is like the golden standard for your body and like what your needs are right and for some people eight hours might be unachievable it might be almost impossible for them to ever actually sleep for eight hours right and then embedded within that it's like is it a consolidated eight hours is it broken up are you having frequent awakenings how long do the awakenings last right so um it really depends on the person and um Again, I always like to go back to accessibility and, and different things because people might have medical issues that inhibit them from sleeping throughout the night. It might be really difficult to achieve consolidated sleep. So for them, it might be, well, if I could get four hours here and then a couple hours later, that's great. <laughs> I'll take that. So. And that's, you know, just as effective. Like we know you can't bank or make up sleep, but it's yeah. like how am I structuring my sleep is, mm-hmm. is also very relevant. Totally. Sure. Okay. So I heard you kind of touch on it a little bit, but let's kind of get into your expertise and like what you feel like is the the typical treatment for insomnia. Yeah. So when I see someone for sleep treatment, um, traditionally I'll do um, a clinical assessment, you know, what's going on for you? What are your struggles? What are you dealing with right now? What's your life like, you know, childhood stuff, you know, because I'm a psychologist, I like to go back in time. Um, And then I really like to get a good assessment about sleep. So we give a lot of measures. We give the ISI, which is the Insomnia Severity Index Score. We give the Sleep Need Questionnaire, which sometimes looks at a daytime fatigue um, so that we could kind of rule out sleep apnea, which is a medical issue. Um, and then we look at, um, you know, baseline sleep data. So, you know, in the initial appointment, we like to get a lot of fact. We like to look at a lot of factors. We also like to look at other sleep disorders. There's over 70 sleep disorders. <laughs> so we want to make sure we're treating the right one. I didn't know that. I mean, isn't that crazy? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I specialize in insomnia. So um, I really have it focused on there. But if I notice that potentially someone's experiencing like sleep apnea, um, I might refer to, you know, sleep medicine or primary care and have them, you know, get a polysomnography, which is a fancy word for a sleep study, um, just to kind of see about oxygen flow and awakenings overnight. Anyway, um, so we do the assessment and then the traditional sleep course is six to eight sessions. I mean, I usually do them between 30 and 45 minutes if we're following the traditional CBTI protocol. Um, and session by session, we really, really talk about what's your baseline sleep data, meaning the person will fill out a sleep diary. I'm really data driven. I really want to see the numbers because I always tell my clients it would be really, really uncomfortable if I watched you sleep. Right. And I calculated the time. So please do that on your own. <laughs> so so <laughs> calculate your time, you know, um, talk about your awakenings, talk about when your earliest bedtime is, talk about, you know, how much time you're spending in bed. And then we like to come up with a sleep efficiency score, which is the amount of time that you're sleeping um, divided by the amount of time in bed. 
So if you're in bed, you know, just say you're in bed for a couple of hours um, and then you're sleeping for a couple of hours, we divide those two numbers. Um, and a sleep efficiency score above 85 is what we strive for, although there are complications for some people, like um, veterans with PTSD traditionally have lower sleep efficiency scores, or women with anxiety, uh, for example. Um, <clears throat> so while we look at the data, we also do a lot of psychoeducation about sleep strategies, and we problem-solve barriers, um, which is the fun part, which I love doing. So we talk about, you know, what's getting in the way of a good night's sleep for you, and you know, um, what about your sleep environment? Tell me about your home. I have clients sometimes that will take pictures and show me their bedrooms, which is kind of awkward, right? In therapy, you're like, you don't want to see where I sleep, but I love seeing that because, yeah, yeah, we need the data. We need to know how you're sleeping and what it looks like because you might um, have your room set up in a way that makes it difficult for you to wake up in the morning, you know, or, you know, uh, the sun is shining right in your face like early in the morning and you want to sleep in a little more. So we assess for all those factors. We look at sleep hygiene. Um, but the three big things that we really, really focus on is um, sleep drive, which is the body's biological need for sleep. Uh, we also look at arousal, which is anxiety. Um, what's keeping you up at night? What sort of thoughts and worries do you have that's um, preventing you from getting getting to sleep or maintaining sleep? Um, and then the third is circadian rhythm, so your traditional sleep-wake cycle. Um, are you a morning owl? Um, no. Morning owl? Yeah, no. Night owl or morning lark? I always messed up. Um, oh. Yeah. Are you, yeah. Are you are you the type that's like a morning person or are you a night person? Um, where does your sleep cycle traditionally fall? Because we want to work with that. Um, and then from there, we kind of look at um, the data. We make changes along the way as well. So we get baseline data and we change. But the thing that people struggle with the most, in my opinion, of course, this everybody's going to think about this differently, is that, you know, people struggle with their thoughts about sleep. Um, thinking about sleep also affects our sleep itself. So sure, sure. that's what we focus on a lot. Yeah. Those I, I work with, obviously, I, mean, I don't specialize in that area, but the power of brain associations. Oh, yeah. What are, um, I have a lot of clients who, when they first start, you know, coming and seeing me, they're sleeping fully closed in their work clothes on their couch. Yeah. People are doing what they can, right? <laughs> For sure, right? And yeah. it's like, okay. But my brain starts to just develop these very, and it doesn't take much for it to develop a very strong association with that, that object or that bed or the couch or sleep or. Totally. I mean, you're touching on Pavlov, right? Um, So, you know, the conditioning that happens, Um, you know, I always suggest to my clients only use the bed for sleep and sex, right? Because then your body, like you're, you described it so beautifully of like, it's going to pair to these things and it's going to expect these activities or these things when you get into bed. So again, always, I always like to talk about accessibility. Some people work from home, they're in a studio apartment. Sometimes it's hard to say, oh, only use your bed for sleep and sex. They're like, where am I going to do my work? You know, I, I don't have a couch right now or I'm in the, um, I'm in the process of moving. What do I do? Um, so I always say any alterations you can make. Um, if you're sleeping on one side of the bed, then work on the other. You know, um, if there's a chair in your room, that's even better. You know, like use your bed as like, you know, um, your desk if you can and sit in a chair. You know, anything that you could do, anything. Clothing, um, so many. Yeah, I can, like I yeah. said, before we yeah. started pouring up, I was like, I can go so many different directions. <laughs> me too, believe me. Um, I work, you know, in my own work with my own clients. It's like, okay. And I love the I I want to get this information out there for people because it's like just if you're having issues with sleep that doesn't mean that you have to flip everything on its head and and become a morning lark yeah up at 5 a.m and like and doing these things it's like no like yeah 
with with our brain, not against it. Totally. No, I, I love how you describe that, because I think a lot of times there's the societal pressure, right? Like morning people are more productive. That's not exactly true. You could be extremely productive and be a night night person. You know, um, it's all a matter of working with your own body. I noticed that people who work shifts have the most trouble because uh, they have shifts that change. Um, you know, sometimes they'll be working nights, sometimes they'll be working days. So it's difficult for them. Um, or, you know, people have a partner, a bed partner, right? And that bed partner might be waking up at a certain time that's not consistent with our own circadian rhythm. So we have to really take take tune to these things. Sure. Okay. So let's get, let's, uh, how does the, I guess that correlation with those that struggle with anxiety or with insomnia also having anxiety? Like, like we said, we kind of alluded to, like that's, yeah. that's a pretty common occurrence. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who have insomnia that don't have anxiety as well. So I, like, I always like to talk about that first. Um, there are people out there who have insomnia that's not connected to any other mental health issue that could just be just part of your, you know, your life pie. Um, you know, there might be a predisposing factor, like a genetic component to um, having insomnia, like if your parents had insomnia and then, you know, you have like big life events that might cause insomnia or and then there's, um, you know, these these factors that. Uh, maintain these behaviors. So the things that you're doing, and that's usually what we focus on in treatment because we can't really control the other two, like big life events or um, how our bodies are formed. But in terms of your question about insomnia and anxiety, I do notice that when we get to the end of treatment, we, we focus a lot on um, anti-arousal measures, which is how do we be relaxed in bed? <laughs> how do we be relaxed to the point where we're actually able to fall asleep? Because people with anxiety um, normally struggle with um, the latency to fall asleep, meaning the time it takes them to fall asleep is extremely high. They struggle, they lay in bed, they toss and turn, and they, they're so concerned about falling asleep that they're looking at the clock and they're just really, really wrapped up in this. So um, I notice a lot of times people will be really good with circadian rhythm. They'll wake up at the same time every day. They'll do all the sleep habits. They'll be really, really good about exercise, no naps, less caffeine. They're really good about all that stuff because that seems within their control. But the people who struggle with anxiety normally have an added issue of, um, like any treatment, of getting uh, your thoughts under control. And what do I do with these thoughts that are really causing distress? The one thing that I notice as well is that there's a tendency to um, minimize, like you said, like minimize the impact that your thoughts actually have on sleep. Because there's a huge correlation. As we know, thoughts affect our sleep and sleep affects everything else. So, um we work a lot with people trying to use cognitive behavioral therapy um, to really look at the thoughts, uh, challenge them and make them more adaptive and helpful. So if you're having if you think about it, we have over 60,000 thoughts a day. It's hard to you know, capture all of them. Right. So what do we do then? Oh, I can't capture my thoughts now. What? Basically, it's all a matter of noticing. So when you notice that you're worrying about sleep or you're having anxiety and you're laying in bed, what do I do? Of course, if you're anxious in bed, we want you to get out of bed because we want to pair the bed with sleep, right? So you get out of bed, you walk around, you do something low key. But in that, you're training your brain. You're training your brain to stay on the path, right, of like, this thought is not actually helping me fall asleep. This thought actually isn't helpful. I have no solutions for this thought. Um, so one thing that we usually suggest is scheduled worry time. Um, it's actually a concept of, you know, leaning into the worry, allowing space to have worry time that's not close to bed um, so people are able to get it out of their system technically. Um, and then when you are laying in bed, you remind yourself, hey, I've worried about this and I've had no viable solutions that I could actually act on. <laughs> so I have to just actually let this go. Um, and then from there, we kind of, you know, everybody's different. Uh, it might also be mindfulness tactics, progressive muscle relaxation and all of that stuff. I do some and I'm it, trained. I do a lot of mindfulness based. Yeah. Therapy along in, in DBT, just different 
you know, we all have our approaches and things. Yeah. And as, as you're speaking on that, I was like, I, I just assumed, um, that mindfulness would be totally like, no, and we know with mindfulness, it's paying attention to the present moment on purpose without judgment. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And think about it. You judge yourself when you can't sleep. You feel a lot of shame if you can't sleep. You you're like, why can't I be like everybody else? But most of the time, other people struggle, too. Right. So that, like you said, I think mindfulness is really important. Think something that's not part of the CBTI protocol that I also um, incorporate is self-compassion. You know, there are other people out there who struggle with this, too. And what would you tell them if they're struggling? And I'll try telling yourself that. People usually cringe when I say that. They're like, oh, God, that doesn't feel nice. (laughs) I don't want to do that, you know. Um, but that's part of it. You know, I, I think, and, and to your point about mindfulness, I think mindfulness helps engage our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our relaxation response. And that is exactly what we want to do when we're in, in bed. Our sympathetic nervous system is like fight or flight, stress, anxiety, cortisol. Oh my goodness. Um, so we want that to kind of quiet down when we're in bed so that we could actually relax because we can't be stressed and relaxed at the same time. Like, and mindfulness, like you said, really, really helps with all that. Right. And, and I feel like, there's so many thoughts in my brain. Um, <laughs> focus on the first one was I hear so often it sounds counterproductive to get out of bed. It's like if I get out of bed, it'll wake me up. Yeah. It might be a myth or, or you know, something to categorize that, but I hear yeah. that a lot. And it's like, totally. Not yeah, yeah. You know, I hear that so often and I work, I work with people who are so resilient and so smart and so like aware and self-aware. They know their bodies and they're like, I know if I get out of bed, it's going to wake me up. And I'm like, you are probably right. You're going to be awake. You're going to actually probably be more awake. But the whole key is like you said before, Kelsey, about that paired association. We want that to go away. So, um, a lot of times people have like a couple of nights of really poor sleep as they're going through treatment. And I usually like really talk about people. Yeah. Getting, get, you know, having this experience because they're like, oh gosh, my sleep is getting worse. I'm like, just please stick with it. It's, it's part of the process. You know, yeah. it's getting better. Um, it's but usually, yeah, better. exactly, exactly. Just like with DBT treatment and stuff like that. Like we're really opening some doors here that maybe you haven't accessed in a while. But, you know, when people actually get out of bed, um, I even, I'm really detailed. I'm like, what are you doing in that time? I hope you're not on your phone. I hope you're not on uh, watching TV, right? I hope you're doing your taxes or reading a textbook from like grad school or something really, really boring. Um, yeah, yeah. And then getting back in bed because after that, I mean, then you're, you're literally, um, you're training your body. You're training yourself. Um, and that's the whole part. Training comes with a lot of discomfort and discomfort usually spurs growth, right? So that's the whole, that's the whole point. And those, those patterns, they, they're patterns for a reason because they didn't form, no pun intended, they didn't form overnight. So they're not <laughs> right. going to. <laughs> right. Exactly. And in, in one night. So yeah, a lot of work. So many moving pieces with it. So, so many moving pieces. And the, and the beautiful thing about insomnia treatment is people get better fairly quick. Um, you know, it's a six week treatment for a reason. Um, usually within the first two weeks, people are like, wow, I can't believe how much I'm getting better. Or, they say, I'm not getting better. I'm like, let's look at your data. Um, it's likely that maybe you have a couple more minutes of sleep or, you know, uh, your sleep efficiency score is getting better or maybe you're spending less time in bed. But the time that you are spending in bed is consolidated sleep. It's not lounging like bed lounging, um, which is like the devil is like, don't lounge in bed. Um, so, yeah, it's it's I don't know. I think like you said about the sleep habits, too. Um, you know, sometimes for people, those have been helpful you know, for survival, right? I mean, staying awake in bed for some people with PTSD, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen, right? So you form these habits to keep yourself safe. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Sleep. 
Totally. Very vulnerable. Yeah. And for people with, well, with anxiety, they can feel that or PTSD, we can, you know, other mm-hmm. occurring disorders, but taking oh, yeah. those things that, you know, during doing that thorough assessment and, and, and probably all throughout that process, I'm assuming you are ruling out co-occurring disorders, medical concerns and, totally. you know, like a, an approach where I'm, I'm sifting and what we're left with is like, that's the route that we're going where we have 100%. to respond first. Totally, totally. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's like we are constantly, every session I do an assessment because technically um, people who are in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia treatment, we do the assessments every single session. So we assess your insomnia not only from your sleep diary, but we also use the insomnia severity, severity index score and the sleep need questionnaire. I want to look at your daytime sleepiness. I want to look at um, what you're struggling with insomnia wise, like in terms of getting to bed and all that. And the great part, I mean, I get really jazzed about this, but like we put it in this really nice um, Excel worksheet that I did not create. One of my colleagues did. Um, if it's created, I feel so put together. Yeah, right. If you have a graph, it's like you have your <laughs> life together. So it graphs all of these numbers and like people could see it in real time, like how they're getting better. And I think that's the greatest part about it. I mean, in therapy, we assess progress and, and all of that. It, it, it looks a little different here, I think, because you're actually getting to see like they're seeing like the graphs and like what they have to work on. And then I, I even noticed like my clients, I think they're just such great people because they're like, oh, wow, like, you know, I'm staying in bed too long. And I'm like, you're see, this is this is the part of therapy where yeah. we're reading yeah. each other's minds and you're becoming your own therapist, which is the best part. <laughs> so you see them not only built, like, obviously we can't change what we don't acknowledge or what I don't understand or what I don't yeah. know. It's like I you see, can see that that evolution and they start to pick up on their own patterns, their own behaviors and oh, yeah. and facilitating the, the change without, you know, then that's, and I tell everybody like, that's the first purpose of any, ultimately any kind of therapy is oh, yeah. for us to get to a place where we feel like, okay, you have, you've got, you, go. <laughs> you are applying these things, these concepts, these tools on your own. I'm always here if you feel like you need to come back, but yeah. you totally. know, need that level of you know guidance or assistance now totally yeah i mean spreading your wings and flying is great and then like at the end of treatment is we we talk a lot about um you know a sleep plan like if something happens in your life that's like super stressful and you don't know like what to do and your sleep is implicated and like you feel like really uneasy about even getting in bed and like what 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 will that look like of course like you said people could always come back but i always try to in, in terms of this treatment create a plan that's so solid that they won't ever need me again. You know, I, I, I want people to feel so empowered to make these changes on their own and give them all the resources. You know, the National Sleep Foundation is a great one for people. If you are struggling with sleep and you're, you know, not looking for a provider, but you want really reliable information, um, I usually, you know, push them that way. There's also an app, um, a CBTI app that you could track all your progress there, uh, which is great. I usually say do it under supervision and therapy, but people use these tools afterwards and, you know, they get better and they stay better and life happens. I mean, people go through divorces, they have kids. Um, I'm sure Amanda's not getting much sleep. You know, there's all these things that are going on, right, that cause sleep issues. So, um, you know, life will happen, but you have the tools. I mean, there's research out there. For sure. And and a question I get a lot, and this might feel like a backtracking question, but how does somebody, like, determine if they have, like, clinical insomnia or mm-hmm. – 
sleep issues or how would somebody make that distinguish, you know, like to say, like, maybe this is something that I should it would benefit me to reach out to to get maybe possible support or assessment. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think of it this way, like there are going to be moments in your life when you are getting less sleep. I think like any issue, if it's really impairing your ability to function, that's when I usually say reach out for help. If you're having a couple of nights of, you know, just say, you know, you got on a plane, you went on vacation, came back, right? Just say there's a time difference. There's jet lag. That's like technically like an acute insomnia issue, meaning like jet lag that lasts like just a couple of days or something like that. Um, you could use over-the-counter medications, of course, talk to your provider. I'm not a prescriber, so just know yeah. that. Um, but a lot of times people take like, you know, exogenous melatonin or they'll take like diphenhydramine, which is in z and Benadryl and stuff like that to fall asleep. But if you're noticing that it's a constant issue that you're having for a couple of months, I usually say reach out. Um, and if you think about insomnia, it's, you know, difficulty falling asleep, um, you know, difficulty maintaining sleep, even though there's the opportunity so that's an important distinction. And then, you know, it, it occurs at least like three times a week. Um, so for people that might mean, oh, my God, yes, I absolutely have clinical insomnia. You also might have sleep apnea. You might have, you know, advanced phase sleep syndrome. Like you have to get an assessment. But I think initially, if you're noticing anything that's off with your sleep, you know, try to do some researching resources and stuff like that. And then reach out if you notice it's impairing your ability to like function at work or school or something. Mm-hmm. And for for folk, you know, folks of it like us in the field, um, you know, it's very common, like, to have these issues. And, and I always, I recommend clients or people that aren't involved already with a, with a treatment team or with a, any kind of clinical provider outside of a primary care provider. I say, like, mention it to them because they're generalists and they can connect you with those, the specialists needed. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I mean, think about it. I had, I had a client who went to a primary care provider and said, hey, I have sleep issues. <clears throat> and the primary care provider said, oh, let's get a polysomnography, right, which is a sleep study. And usually we only do sleep studies for sleep apnea. Uh, like as a psychologist, I'll like rule out anything else. And then I'll say, OK, this is out of my scope. Uh, it's a medical thing at this point. Um, so they might actually go for the polysomnography first and their sleep might look fine in terms of oxygen levels, they're getting an adequate amount of breaths per night and all that. Um, and the polysomnography might, the polysomnographist might say, hey, you know, they're good. They might just see a therapist, you know, and, and work on sleep changes and all that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like you said, I think either way, whatever provider that you touch on or that you could get connected with will be able to lead you to the right source. Right. It's like, well, it just be it's beneficial either way to to voice the concern if it's impacting functioning and you know, rolling a rule out as a rule out. It's just, okay. What, what the accessibility as far as what's my first line of getting access to, you know, connection to those types of resources or referrals. Totally. And and to your point too, like if just say you have anxiety and you're talking with a therapist already, you might say like, Hey, you know, I can't sleep at night. I'm so anxious. Right. So you might work on anxiety treatment and your sleep might actually get better. You know, yeah. so you might not even have to reach out about sleep, but, you know, it might be you're working on anxiety and your anxiety is great, but you're still kind of struggling with sleep. And at that point, you might want to, you know, shift focus um, or find another provider. Sure. And right, we kind of touched on I want to give appropriate time to like the anxiety piece of things, of things as far as ways you typically treat anxiety related to sleep. I know we kind of touched on like mm-hmm. stress, worry time and things, but. What falls in with kind of your specialty and how you kind of really target the anxiety piece for for people? 
Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So basically in my clinical interview, um, you know, depending on what the, what the patient's coming in for, you know, they might say, I am so anxious, like, oh my gosh, like I can't get my thoughts under control. They also might say, I just, I just can't sleep. So based on whatever they find to be the most severe after we do like, you know, the generalized anxiety inventory and the ISI and stuff like that, we might look at which is more severe and where we want to start. Um, I like to do one at a time because a lot of times symptoms will remit for either as we go through the course of treatment. I notice if anxiety is like the primary concern and there's a lot of generalized anxiety around a topic, then we'll focus on that first. And then usually the insomnia part or like the, the having frequent awakenings at night or like not being able to initiate sleep will kind of get better over time. <clears throat> but um, usually I will I will start with whatever's more severe, basically. And client preference. I always like to get a sense for them, like you're the expert on your body and your life. What would be more meaningful for you to start with? Um, and then from there, we kind of talk a little bit more about, you know, it, a lot of it is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, for some people, it's acceptance and commitment therapy. For some people, it's DBT like skills and stuff. So it depends. Um, but a lot of times when it's anxiety relating to sleep itself and initiating sleep, um, rolling out, is this a trauma based experience? Is this purely anxiety? Is this a phobia? Like, where is this coming from? Is this health anxiety? Um, <clears throat> if it's generalized anxiety, a lot of times they overlap in terms of the treatment, at least how I view it. Every mm-hmm. provider is different. Um, for example, if I'm working with someone with anxiety, but it's a different sort of anxiety, maybe it's like a needle phobia, it might be difficult, you know, um, in terms of like things overlapping. But if we look at an anxiety hierarchy and, you know, if we talk about like, you know, oh, like talking about the needle and then like, you know, all that stuff, um, they learn a lot of skills to control their thoughts, you know, and that's going to overlap directly with insomnia treatment of like, you have to be able to control your thoughts and stuff like that. So like the overarching concept it's like okay that's something that we've been working on and then it can you know be it's like a i frame it to my clients i don't know my brain always works as having like comparisons or metaphors or something but yeah (laughs) it's like a toolbox right yeah like a toolbox and the goal isn't to have you know it's about quality over quantity so it's like okay this method or this approach is working whenever we are you know addressing this specific type of anxiety and we can use those core principles and it's for the the sleep piece as well 100 percent. i mean there's so many and as a clinician you know like other modalities like you look at all like all the modalities out there and there you could always pull some patterns from all of them right so it could definitely overlap for sure um, I, I like your idea about the toolbox. I think I might steal that. Um, that's great. <laughs> you know, you yeah. put them all in a toolbox, and then you can open it up when you need it, right? And, you know, a lot of that, they generalize. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no. Totally cool. Yeah, it goes. I always, you know, I really promote that idea of, like, once you have that toolbox, it's yours. Right. It goes everywhere with you. So, you know, it can go with you when it when you're in bed for for sleep. It can go with you if you are at the doctor, like, and have to get blood work. It's going with you here, and it's and it can be very empowering because they're like, oh, oh. So whenever <laughs> I have that same dysregulated somatic response, I can do that too. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's like even like, but totally, totally. And and like I like how you touched on mindfulness before, right? Like I think of diaphragmatic breathing and how helpful it could be for like so many different things, right? Like burnout and anxiety and insomnia and like trying to get to sleep at night. Like, let me do some deep breaths and like, 
you know, regulate myself in a way that might be different than, you know, a DBT skill of like the tip skill of like pouring water, like ice and stuff. Yeah. And another thing, and I don't know if you're like, I am fascinated (laughs) when I talk about like the vagus nerve and like, oh, yeah, of our nervous system. So it's something that came to my mind, you know, like the stimulating and and exercise and strengthening vagal tone. And I, it's one of the biggest things that I, I touch on and, you know, how can I activate that regulatory part of my nervous system with the the vagus nerve? I love that. I've always wanted to, like, I've learned about it in grad school and it's something that I don't like normally focus on. And it's actually something that I have on my to-do list to learn more about. So that's great. It's fascinating. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, the biggest nerve and, you know, in our body and it directly connects our, our brain, that regulatory, you know, those regulatory functions with our gut health or, you know, so many like our heart rate, our respiratory rate, so many things. That's amazing. I, I, uh, I've worked with people with needle phobia for a long time and, um, we talked about that quite a bit about like how it could be connected there. Um, you know, we focus more on like thoughts and like all that other stuff. But like, I just think about that all the time and I have a needle phobia myself. I think that's why I'm intrigued. But I think about like, oh my gosh, like that is so connected to anxiety and could be connected to insomnia too. I mean, if we're really pulling here and thinking about this. For sure. And, and I know we said like, and it might be some helpful <clears throat> for people that kind of a, like I said, like a squirreling off point. <laughs> We've touched on a couple of myths and are there any other like, pretty pretty large or like prominent not to like put you on the spot for like mm-hmm. a talking point and prepare for but other pretty prominent or common myths about insomnia or anxiety related mm-hmm. to sleep yeah I mean the biggest one is that um people will frequently tell me like I wish I could fall asleep like I used to when I was younger um why can't I get the sleep that I used to when I'm, I was younger and if we think about sleep architecture infants and newborns are like they have like 70% of their sleep that's REM, REM sleep. Um, and as we age, it like almost reverses. Um, you get a little more deep sleep. So as sleep, as you age, your sleep architecture and the stages of sleep that you're in more of the time changes. So that not only that changes, but as we age, there's things that wake us up in the middle of the night, right? Um, we don't need that much sleep. Um, as, as an adolescent, you might need like 10 hours of sleep. As an older adult, like elder, like over like the age of 70 or 80 years old, I mean, you might not need more than six hours of sleep um, and you might also have more frequent awakenings. So the amount of sleep that you have actually changes over time. Or the, let me rephrase the amount of sleep that you might need um, that's biologically needed uh, might change over time. And when we think of I always talk about sleep architecture, meaning like the stages of sleep and how they um, how they look on different ages within the, the, the lifespan also change. So um, when people tell me, oh, gosh, in middle school, when I was so young, I would I would just sleep through the whole night, you know, and I think I'm like, I can't even remember my sleep from two weeks ago. Right. So it's like I know that there's this tendency to idealize, too, about like our younger years and potentially how we slept. And sometimes we're good historians with this. And sometimes, you know, we just think about the really good times. Right. <laughs> so and we're comparing yeah. to our current life. So, yeah. So that's a big one. Um, another big one is that, um, you know, people with anxiety, um, you know, I had I had a couple of clients say like, oh, I have anxiety and I'm so concerned about my sleep. That means I should be sleeping more because I am concerned and I'm focusing on it. And we notice even in the CBTI protocol, it'll say 
the more you focus, sometimes for people with anxiety, it actually gets worse because <laughs> you're focusing so hard on it. Um, and I'm sure you see this in treatment, too, when people focus really, really deeply on something, really good intentions, but it might actually make anxiety worse. Yeah, um, uh, because the amount of my energy and my focus yeah. is being on it, I almost become hyper, hyper aware. Yeah to the thing it's like uh if we struggle with health anxiety yes and i'm googling and i'm looking into i'm gathering all of the, the data and the research and it and it should be making me feel better exactly and, and it's some yes but other yeah. times, yeah, other times it's not so helpful yeah <laughs> exacerbating for sure yeah and then another myth too is um you know the amount of sleep so I need eight hours. I need eight hours. There are people out there who function great off eight hours. But I think it's always important to look at that statistic and look at that um, amount of sleep and, and really think about what that means. Like, what's the rationale for having a goal that's eight hours? Is it because you know for sure for you it's good? Do you know for sure you've taken your own data on this? Um, <clears throat> a lot of times when people are looking at like that eight hour rule, um, we also notice that they might be discounting other things that might be going on in their life. If you have anxiety, just say um, you're a woman who has like multiple roles, like you're a working mom, maybe a single working mom. You have two jobs or something like that. Um, we really have to think about life circumstances, socioeconomic status, access to resources. All those things might make it difficult for people to fall asleep or maintain sleep. So in an ideal world, if there were no stressors, yeah, eight hours sounds great totally achievable um, in the 21st century in 2021, especially. I mean, we have so many different things that we're focused on and so many things that are stressful. So expecting our body to sleep soundly at night with zero awakenings for eight hours straight every single night might be we have to you know, change our expectations um, and actually make them more realistic to who we are as a human and, and the things that we're actually doing. Um, also, I think you touched on this before, which I thought was such a great addition was um, the American culture of like productivity and focus on work and all of that. I mean, if you're working, if you're working all this time, it's going to be really difficult for you to feel like you have a wind down period. We call it a buffer time at night. So yeah. if you're working 12 hours a day, just say you have two jobs or something and you're trying to get to sleep at night and you're forcing yourself, it's like you've had no time to wind down. <laughs> so you yeah. might, it might take you a little longer than the average person who has one job potentially. Right. And and a concept that came came to my brain when you mentioned that was um, people maybe, like you said, not not allowing themselves that wind down time. Like the importance. I'm using so many words to say the importance of transitioning to sleep, like mm -hmm. how unrealistic it is to just say when I lay down, I'm expecting myself to just to fall asleep. Totally. People don't give themselves enough grace. I mean, and enough compassion, right? Like you worked a full day, like you're, you're on this earth. Living is hard. <laughs> like there's a lot of things that go on just as a human being. And then you put, you put gender, race, sexuality, all these things on top of it that potentially cause more difficulty for people, right? So I think really affording yourself a little bit more grace and pause when it comes to thinking about and being curious about your sleep and wind down time is important. Um, and the buffer time, I like to talk about like an hour before bed. So if we like reduce electronics, put the lights lower, you know, um, make the bedroom dark and cool and things like that, put on soft music, candles, things like that, set the mood. Um, not just when a bed partner is coming over, right? You want to set the mood for yourself, you know, your own self, like when you're about to go to sleep, because um, you deserve that just as much as anybody else does. Um, that's really important because you're training your body like, okay, now this is the wind down time. So like you mentioned before about that paired association, like when the lights get dim, 
our body reacts to that, reacts to that because mm-hmm. our circadian rhythm, if you think about it, um, which is our sleep-wake cycle, there's a, a suprachiasmatic nucleus, and that uh, focuses on our sleep-wake cycle. And the way that it's regulated is by light and consistency. So if you wake up at the same time every day and you expose yourself to light at the right times or not, that will regulate your cycle. Um, it regulates melatonin secretion and a lot of the other biological process things that happen overnight. So um, I think the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway here, if people are able to do it, again, accessibility, is if you could wake up at the same time every single day and have a solid buffer time right before bed, that's great. I also wouldn't um, focus on a hard bedtime. Everybody's different, of course. You look, you look to your provider for more specific recommendations, but as a blanket statement for sleep hygiene, um, the wake time is more important than the, than the bedtime. The wake time you could actually control. The bedtime is like you might be anxious, you might be dealing with something, you, you might get out of work late, um, but if your alarm goes off, people might say, like, Dr. Casey, what do I, I don't want to wake up, but you can. You can. You know, you have a choice whether you wake up or not and whether you take the alarm and get out of bed or not. It's up to you. You might not have motivation. You might hate it. You could hate me for it. I'm cool with it. But it's it's within, you know, a choice point for you, you know. Um, so those are the biggest takeaways, I think. And I think that can help. Thank you for that piece, because I feel like that can be helpful for people <clears throat> as far as showing themselves grace, whether or not they struggle with anxiety related to sleep, just in mm-hmm. general issues with sleep and anxiety. It's just. Oh, yeah. I mean, concept of like, OK, I I need to acknowledge what is within my control, what is outside of my control and. Actually validate that. Totally. Yeah, people with anxiety, um, I feel like they have a full-time job on top of people who don't because you're constantly worried and thinking about things that potentially you can't control. And I think sleep is one of those things that feels so intangible and the concept feels elusive to people. Like, I don't know how to get control of this. Um, and I think if we're able to be consistent, that's really the biggest key is like being consistent about thinking about sleep in a good way, helpful way, of course, if it causes more anxiety, then don't. <laughs> um, but your wake time, um, and then thinking about you as a human on this earth, I mean, it, it's it's really difficult to just get through the day for some people. Some people really struggle. Um, and if you're one of those people, I mean, I feel you, and it's really tough. There was a point in my life when it was just a struggle to get up. Um, so I think really trying to focus on, if this is my goal for the day, is waking up at 7 because I have to be work at 8, let me just try to do that and get out of bed. So Ritualizing yeah. things that are within my control. Totally. hundred percent. Yeah. I like that. Well, uh, thank you. I'm just going to thank you so much. And we ask every, every guest, another thing to maybe make you feel like you're on the spot, but, um, we ask every guest if there's just any, any like mantra, you know, something to live by or last thoughts or tidbit to leave our community with before we wrap up and we sign off. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Um, you have to see anything. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have a couple, but, um, I think the one thing that I would say as a takeaway, it's something that I'm trying to strive for myself too, is that, um, you know, the past version of yourself was there for a reason and it's never too late to make changes to become your ideal self. And you might just have to practice who that person is. You might have to practice waking up at a certain time or you might have to practice, ritualizing your life or something like that but practice makes progress yes 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 well again thank you so much and i knew i I know i said that i was going to say this again but if they're you know on those other areas that you you know really specialize in i know amanda and i would always be happy to have you back at a at a later later date so 
if if that is ever something that yeah I know it takes a lot of time for folks out of their day and all of us have busy lives but but thank you being here I would absolutely this was so fun so yes I will take you up on that offer this would be great (laughs) so okay guys so Everybody, you know, thank you, Dr. Kristen Casey. Again, we'll put in our show notes. Or is there any other? Are there words are hard? <laughs> are there any other resources that you recommend that we put in the show notes for our listener? I kind of jotted down. I put down your website, drkristencasey.com, your TikTok handle. Um, mentioned the CBTI app, National Sleep Foundation. Mm-hmm. Anything yeah. Else? Yeah, sleep, the the sleepfoundation.org and then the national um gosh, I have to get back to you on this one. It's uh the National Sleep Alliance. I something like that. Let me get back to you. Uh, I don't want to misspeak. Um because there's two different ones that are very similar, but there's that. I also I have a book. It's not related to sleep 100%, but we do touch on anxiety in there a lot. Um so if people are geared more towards like, hey, I have a little bit of sleep issues, but I also struggle with anxiety, it's only a 70-page book. It's like a quick read. Um, it's on Amazon. What was the title? Um, it's called Life Lessons to Master Before You Die. It's pretty Ooh. blunt. <laughs> but uh, one of the things um, that people really struggle with is, you know, I want to show up as um, <clears throat> as my ideal self. And how do I do that? And a lot of times people are like, I struggle with sleep and anxiety. Like, what do I do? It's not only geared towards anxiety, but really just making, like you said, really ritualistic habits to create a life that's uh, worth living and a meaningful life. Authentic, too. Yeah. Uh- All right. Thank you so much. We will have those typed up and um, put in our show notes. And then if there's anything else, feel free, you know, in the meantime to email over to us. And if it has any questions, like I said, we'll have Kristen Casey's contact information or just ways you can access her content on her platforms and the show notes as well. Great. Thank you so much, Kelsey. No problem. Thank you again for our listeners. Don't like I said, don't forget to like, subscribe, follow. And please leave us comments, feedback, um, if there's topics that we haven't touched on and you feel like would be beneficial for you, please, like, reach out to us, contact us, leave comments, um, and we'll do our best to locate, you know, uh, reliable and um, effective guests to um, reach out to and host on that topic if we can. Next week, we will be which is shocking to me, will be at the last, the final episode of our Trauma and Chakra Healing series with Lisa Schaefer. So she's going to be joining me one final time, and we're going to be covering the final chakra being the crown chakra. So we're grateful for all of our guests, but Lisa, for giving us so much of her time and providing us with this uh, multi-part series. So make sure you tune in next week for our final installment of that series. Again, everybody, thank you and take care. If I can make my screen bigger to stop recording.